Welcome to the second reading podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of September 14th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm happy to welcome my friend and colleague, Professor Eric McDaniel, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Government here at UT Austin. Uh, he's the author of Politics in the Pews, The Political Mobilization of Black Churches, and among other affiliations, is currently serving as a Public Religion Research Institute Public Fellow. We'll inevitably mention PRRI, and that's what we're talking about. So thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you for inviting me. So let's just jump right to it. You've got a couple of pieces out there in the public ether that have come out in the last couple of weeks based on research that you've been doing on what you've called... I may be changing your language here a little bit. The concept of threatened white masculinity. One of these pieces is in Salon. The other is on the Texas Politics Project on the blog in our polling section. And I'll put links to this in the blog post for this edition of the podcast. So, you know, I want to start with kind of the broad view of your interest here. You started doing work back in the much earlier part of your career on politics and religion, particularly in black churches. We mentioned your book. I'm wondering how you developed this idea and developed the interest in this idea of white masculinity and its implications for politics. Yeah, Jim, that's a really interesting question of how I got here. I think it was a lot of it was some observational things that I've noticed. So the kind of good guys with guns or the differential treatment you saw of kind of blacks with guns and whites with guns where one is seen as protector, the other one is seen as predator. And really looking at the rhetoric of the 2016 election made it very, uh, almost hard to ignore. But what, I, what I'm talking about with the, or showing with these data is something that's been talked about for, for quite a bit now. Uh, since the 90s, or even really since the 60s, there has been this discussion of a kind of a threat to white masculinity. So there were a lot of conservative pundits in the 50s and 60s talking about with women uh, working, that men were losing their place in the household, but also with the advancement of the civil rights movement, where where were white men going to be in regard to this? And and then, then you see kind of coming out of the 80s and 90s, the, a lot of uh, stories about the, I guess, the fall of white masculinity and how white men feel like they, they're being left behind. And this became, you know, a clear aspect of it when talking about the 2016 election. And the presence of a black president and then the potential for a female president basically made it look like white men were no longer relevant. And there was this concern, and it's something that you know President Trump tapped into, and it was rhetoric was he, meaning he really stressed masculinity. Uh, we're calling little Marco, uh, how big his hands were. It was, it was something that was clearly a uh, to show that he was the big man in the room. And this kind of stuck out to me. And so I've started uh, looking at the data, originally started with data from PRI, 
And they had two questions. And so one was, you know, society's become too soft and feminine. The other question was uh, that diversity comes at the expense of whites. So I started there and- That was kind of like an agree, that was like an agree, disagree, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like the the extent to which you agree or disagree. Right. And really, you know, gender mattered quite a bit. There's an article by Melissa Deckman, which demonstrates, you know, this gender thing really mattered. And, but I've also found that, you know, the race thing mattered as well. Maybe not as much as gender uh, in that case, but all of a sudden race and gender became, became interlocked. And you find that people who agree with both of these had based of those who agree with both of both statements, about 90% of them reported voting for Trump. And so this is for men and women. And you can see that Democrats who agree with both, independents, more likely to vote for Trump. You know, once you get to Republicans, you kind of hit a, a bit of a ceiling effect because you, you can't push them even uh, further towards Trump. But the evidence suggests that that was also a motivating factor. I mean, it was one of the real things that I found really interesting is, you know, we talked about this and I started reading the stuff that you were doing and you know, this really came out of a look at the historical development in the context of this. It didn't really, it's not this thing that seems to me really appeared to you in a, the kind of quantitative, more behavioral work that, that people do, but rather it connects to a, to a broad arc. And you've traced it back to the 60s and the kind of, you know, broadly speaking, a modern manifestation of this that comes in the post-civil rights movement. My guess is, and you could tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, you could... If you were, if one was so inclined, you could trace this pretty far back, as you think about, um, you know, the disc- discourses, you know, going back as far as discourses about slavery, discourses then about freed slaves, and then also discourses even about immigration to some degree. Although there's an interesting asterisk asterisk on this that, you know, there's something really powerful that you've that you're kind of developing there because you can see it really threaded through a long historical arc. And, you know, I'm not saying you invented this concept, but in the way that you've you've seized on it, there's a lot going on there that goes back pretty far, right? Yes, and it's really a way of thinking about how Americans have come to define themselves. So Christian Dumay has a book titled Jesus and John Wayne, which talks about really evangelicals and how they've, latched onto this idea that there's a threat to white Christian masculinity. And this idea, you know, while she talks about the John Wayne issue, it was it's something that happened early in the 20th century and something that's kind of been reoccurring throughout American history of the placement of, of white men. And if you think about the early the early stages of the, of the nation, you know, the people who could vote were white men, usually white middle-class men. And so you have this idea that these are the, this is the ideal type. So a white land-owning Christian male is the ideal type of American. And this has, you know, this has continued to exist. When you ask surveys now, you know, should you be a Christian to be an American? You find that, you know, close to the majority of Americans uh, agree with this. Should you be white? Should you, have, uh, should you have European ancestry? You know, you you get this clear image of a white Christian nation. And the gendered part isn't really highlighted. But I do think there is something about this that it's not just an issue of race, but race and gender, and it's kind of establishing a hierarchy within the U.S. And while the U.S. prides itself on focusing on egalitarian principles, it cannot necessarily move away from these classic descriptive uh, ways of understanding who is and who is an American. And because 
classically, when you think of president, white male. When we think of leaders, white men. And when we're seeing a female speaker of the house, you're seeing uh, openly, um, see people of color take on, uh, take on leadership roles. You're seeing individuals who are uh, part of the LGBTQ community uh, taking on roles. All of a sudden, this begins to reshape where they fall within this. And this is this is kind of a critical thing. This is important to their identity, understanding who they are, their role in the world. And this has been lost because they want one politically, they are not the the beacon economically, they're losing out. And so there is this uh, a bit of an angst and what should what should be done. And a lot of what you're seeing done with the rise of the Tea Party and, and other groups is really a reaction to this sense of, uh, of a threat to their identity and a threat to their their standing in society. I'm interested that you mentioned losing out in that because it also, I mean, one of the things that I think is a little bit embedded in this, and we'll talk, we can talk a little bit about it in the data as we move on, is that this undermines a little bit, you know, the the debate that's off that's out there, and certainly was out there after Trump's rise and after Donald Trump won the 2016 election about kind of, you know, culture and identity on one hand, and, and also in the Tea Party movement, culture and identity on one hand and economics on the other, because really status and relative position and, as you mentioned, hierarchy really is kind of a composite of all those things. And so it becomes about kind of teasing all that out rather than arguing one or the other, I think. That makes sense? Oh, very much so. And it's, I guess the way I, I think about it is that race is baked into the cake. It, it, race isn't everything in American politics, but it does have a, an effect on a lot of things. And so, same thing with gender. I've, so one of the things that's important to note about the rise of the Tea Party, and I think a great book to look into is Maparetto and Chris Parker's book, Change They Can't Believe In, which talks about the rise of the Tea Party. And they point out that this was not really an issue of uh, being anti-tax or the economy. It was really more of a reaction to a loss of status amongst white middle-class uh, Christian men. So in, in addition to this, one of the things we've seen or a lot of scholars have done is they've noted that the way white men define themselves is based upon what uh, white masculinity is in many ways shaped in contrast to one white femininity and black masculinity. And, you know, when we think about economic standing, that a lot of times economic standing is based upon what the, how, how well is the other group doing. If the other group, if I'm doing better than the other group, then, then I'm okay. But if I see, but if I feel like I'm not doing as well as the other group, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna panic. And so it's, it's one of these things of that it's very complicated. And you know, there are a bunch of books which have talked about this. So one in particular, Angry White Men, where, uh, where basically a bunch of case studies with you know white men talk about okay, what happened. You know, and again, they talk about the loss of status. And when they direct their anger. Towards towards a group, they, they direct it towards immigrants, towards feminists, towards people of color, and this is something that President Trump has tapped into. We're talking about the threat of immigrants, uh, the very strong macho talk, and even right now, you know, the idea of keeping low-income individuals out of the suburbs is basically saying we're going to keep the rowdy people of color uh, away from away from these communities, and it's it's really tapped into this. And the problem is because it's so reactionary that. Things aren't well thought out. It's done based out of anger and out of reaction, as opposed to uh, clearly being thought out, which can lead to disastrous, uh, 
disastrous conclusions. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that you you track that kind of trajectory of the Tea Party. Um, you know, Josh and I have done a couple of, you know, really just papers for the sake of an excuse or a reason to go and gather up data that you can really clearly see in Texas the way that people who identify with the Tea Party or or at least have a even have a, a degree of passive support for the Tea Party in some one of the items that we use in the poll across time, you know, begin, you know, you can find signs that in the beginning they're catalyzed by this argument about the economy, but also about big government, but that over time you can really just see, you know, the displacement of that discontent onto issues like immigration. And then later on, I think we're, you know, we haven't really gone back and looked at this, but I think later on you can see race become entangled in that even more than it is explicitly in the immigration notion of the way that immigration triggers identity. And it kind of displaces all that and becomes a powerful, a powerful com common point in the way that they think about politics. You know, with that, so let's, let's, you know, so we've raised Texas a couple in a couple of ways here. Let's talk a little bit about what you did with the Texas data. So, you know, first talk a little bit about how you operationalized the concept of threats to 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 white masculinity and the data that you used from the Texas polling. So with the Texas poll, I created uh, an additive measure into a composite of how much do you believe certain groups are discriminated against? And so the Texas poll asked uh, a spatter of questions about how much discrimination is targeted towards certain groups. So you had men, women, gays and lesbians, uh, transgender people, Christians, uh, Muslims, blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians. So what I did is I took the, the respondent's average score for uh, blacks, Asians and Latinos. So I kind of added those three and divided by and added those and divided by three to get the average and subtracted that from the score for whites. Then I then for men, I took the average for women, uh, gay people, trans transgender people, and took that average and subtracted it from women and then added the two together. And so the way this works out is that if you believe whites and men are discriminated more so than these comparison groups, you're going to be at the high end. If you believe you're discriminated less, you're going to be at the low end. If you're in the middle, it means you're just, you think they're discriminated about the same amount. And so what we have here is a measure that basically puts people at two polar ends of one, white men are being targeted, two, white men are not being targeted at all. And then those in the middle, like, no, they're being, they're facing the same amount of discrimination as anybody else. And that's the, uh, the the purpose of the measure. And the thing about this, what I find is that it's it works fairly works very well. It seems to really indicate a deep seated uh, attitude that uh, is strongly correlated with a number of with a number of attitudes with a number of, of policy preferences and attitudes towards elected officials. Yeah, as you started running the state, it was amazing how well it fit. So tell us, tell us a little bit about like unpack that a little bit. And we'd have to go into the specific, but in terms of the rel the relative perception of you know the intensity of the perception of threat among these different groups, like for example, it was really held up pretty in, in interesting ways at the intersection of well within the categories of race and gender, and then at the inter intersector at the intersection of race and gender, right? 
Yes. So clearly, uh, if you think about this, is white men scored the highest. Uh, but right below white men, you found kind of Hispanic men and white women. They were kind, they were up there as well. They were the top uh, three in the the top three in the perception of threat, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The top three, and, and then followed by Latino women, then black men and black women. Uh, we couldn't include other groups because there were just there was just too small of a sample of those groups. But if you think about it in terms of you know it's white men at the top, and then you kind of have a tie for second place between Hispanic uh, Hispanic men and 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 white women, and then Hispanic women, black men, and black women. So black women are, are clearly uh, are most opposed to this idea. And the thing about it is there is a bit of a gap between black men and black women, but it's a very minor gap, um, and the gap between uh, Hispanic men and women is, is small as well. And so really the top three are going to be where white men are clearly above everybody else. Then, you know, white men, well, white women and Hispanic men are kind of tied uh, in that regard. So there's been a, a, an interesting discussion like right now in the moment. And, I, you know, I was going to kind of have us go through some of this and do implications. But let's just grab it now while we're, while we're on top of it. I mean, that finding on Hispanic men, it's hard not to look at that and think about the politics of the moment and this ongoing discussion about, you know, whether, for example, Republicans, but more specifically Trump, is doing better than he should or worse than he should, or whether it's interesting that, you know, that he is doing, you know, that he is getting some share of the Hispanic vote, despite, you know, lots of reasons you might think that he wouldn't. Yeah, it, that is kind of an interesting point, and I'm. We've looked at the one data wants to and, walk softly on this. I mean, it's pretty preliminary, but still. Yeah, it, it's and it's really not clear why they're scoring so high. I mean, they score about the same both on the kind of the white threat and the male threat. So it's not sure if it's if one is driving the other, and it, it's not clear at all. There seems to be some issues related to religious conservatism that might be driving this, but it's not that's not really clear. And I think one of the major issues we have when looking at uh, the Latino population is that unlike the black population, which is which is is a clearly formed racial identity, it's not as strong amongst Latinos, I believe. Uh, it's more of an ethnicity. And so whereas black is something your race is seen as something permanent, something you're born into and you can't and you can't leave. Ethnicity is seen as something that can be shed over time. Uh, so you can learn a new language, you can uh, adopt a new culture, and you know you can be part of this. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case, but I do think there uh, that you do have a significant number of individuals in the Latino population who who may see themselves. Uh, who may say, yeah, I'm, I'm Hispanic, but be more likely to understand themselves as as being white uh, than being Hispanic. So, yeah, yeah, I'm Hispanic, but I'm a white Hispanic. Uh, that might be driving it. Or, or it could be uh, a, a number of other things uh, that, that are driving this. So I'm not really sure. And this is going to take a deeper dive. And really, we probably need a much larger sample in order to, in order to parse this out. But Latino politics is... Is a lot more complicated than you see in black politics because of the immigration status, national origin, uh, and then also the Latino experience changes from region to region. Uh, uh, Latinos in Texas have a different experience than Latinos in California other than the ones in Florida. 
than the ones in New York. And this kind of makes things it's hard to say that oh this is one group right. when really in reality it's it's a bunch of different groups and they have vastly di- different different experiences and these experiences play out different differently put well and we're seeing the you know we're seeing this you know I, I'm so long you know this has been going on for quite a while but it's man- making manifest again right now because of the election and the role of Latinos in the election that you know there's you know it's always struck me that there is a reflex particularly in media coverage and among people that don't pay only sporadic attention to this you know to do two things one is to not you know quite realize that you know this regional and and country of origin and immigration trajectory all of the, the a bunch of factors lead to a lot of differentiation within the Latino community. I mean, we're seeing it right now in the discussion of, you know, why Biden is not doing well or ostensibly not doing well among Latinos in Florida, but seems to be doing well among Latinos elsewhere. And I've had, you know, a couple of people, you know, get in touch, reporters recently kind of saying, hey, what do you think of this? And the answer is fairly obvious that the ethnic composition of Latinos in Florida is vastly different than the than the ethnic composition of Latinos in in Texas and in California, just to take two examples, but also you could add New York to that, given the the, the, the heavy presence of Cuban Americans and, and Latinos of Q, otherwise Cuban origin in Florida, which has always looked somewhat different than, you know, some of these other Latino groups who in turn look different from each other. And this sort of line of argument and or this result and the work you've done recently also raises these big questions, I think. You know, the study of these groups has often been politicized in interesting ways. I mean, because, you know, I mean, to me, the the specter of, you know, the very pointed disagreements within people that were doing Mexican-American and Latino studies in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, you know, argued over the concept of assimilation is really lurking here, as are the very practical political, you know, fights in Texas over, you know, how civil rights legislation and civil rights court rulings in various ways that created, you know, legal categories of black and white and the, the strategy that Latino political activists took and whether they were going to try to have Latinos and Mexican Amer- and or Mexican Americans qualify as a minority group or as something more like white. And that's, you know, and that has caused practical political friction between black and Latino groups over the years. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting uh, take on this because Given the Latino experience in, in Texas, you know, they've clearly been a marked group and they've classically been treated or talked about as immigrants. But, you know, as a lot of us say, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And so they've been here for generations, but still seen as seen it, still seen as outsiders. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sub, subject to segregationist policies. Yes. Know, unambiguously. And, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, things such as, you know, the thing about these the high schools, I was just to. Uh, a, a friend of mine's mother talked about how the segregated high schools for white kids would go all the way up to graduation, but for Latino kids, it would stop at 10th grade. And this is in the Austin area. And so if you wanted the kid to graduate, you had to send them down to the valley. And so you have to send them away from family to then graduate from high school to then get those benefits. Um, 
California had to wrestle with this as well. There's this film I show in my in my class called the Lemon Grove Incident, and this is I this has happened I want to say in the 40s or 50s, where they try to segregate the school uh, between Latinos and, and whites, and the courts ruled that because Latinos are, are considered Caucasian in the state of California, they can't be segregated. They were they were Negro, they were Indian, they could be segregated, but since they were considered Caucasian, they could not be. And that's how they won the case. They didn't win the case because the court ruled segregation is wrong. They ruled you can't segregate within race. They, they were segregated and, in the, into the wrong category. Yeah, yeah. And, wow. so, <laughs> uh, and so this so this presents a, a, a weird way of understanding, okay, what is the, how do we understand race and ethnicity? How do we understand this group? which is an ethnic group and the idea that ethnicity is, is malleable and what is, who's accepted, who's not accepted. And a lot of it is really based upon outside pressures. And if we understand how racial groups form, they're not formed uh, internally. They're usually formed externally. The ex- external pressures yeah. make it so that you understand that, no, we are a group and these other two people, I mean, these other people yeah. see us as a group and they're going to keep us as a group. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a function of how fundamental those categories are that when you try to talk about racialization, quote unquote, as a social process, people have a lot of trouble with it, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's you know, at, at an intuitive level, which I, you know, I've always thought is, you know, underlines how well it works as a social process, right, or how effective and powerful it is. Yeah, for, for, I mean, for the longest time, you know, uh, Irish and Italians were not considered white. They were considered to be outside of the out of the white race, but eventually they were they were brought into the fold, and it shows just how malleable um, race is. And, and again, the way we understand race in the U.S. is different than how we understand it might be understood in Latin America. For so, right. yeah. So it's it's a it's it's a fluid it's a uh, fairly fluid concept where where you where you are in space and time depicts you know how you understand race. Okay, I want to I want to move on before we run out of time too much and talk a little bit more. But let's, you know, you found this, and, and I would urge people to go and look at at the article that that Eric produced for our website because all of this and more is in there. You know, there's there's you you look at sort of how this plays out in the context of party in attitudes towards Trump, um, attitudinal, you know, questions that were on, and the, and this was all from the. Uh, uh, June 2020 UT Texas Politics Project poll in Texas. Attitudes about increasing diversity on police violence. But I also want to talk a little bit, because it's so of the moment, about what you found in the context of COVID-19. Because in some ways, this, you know, as interesting as this is, as you go through party, Trump, attitudes on race and gender, attitudes towards diversity, you know, once you kind of get in your head what you're talking about and what the concept of the, the ideological concept is here, it all kinds of falls into place. And these attitudes are stronger to some degree where you would expect them to be stronger. The COVID-19 stuff was a, was an interesting extension of that, that maybe not quite as intuitive on the surface of it. So maybe talk a little bit about what you found there. So again, as you pointed out, when it Looking at just normal political attitudes, strong support for Trump, strong identification with the Republican Party, a concern about the amount of diversity in the state as opposed to celebrating it, and then, of course, you know, opposition to the protests. And 
when you move this to COVID-19, what you find is that people who score high on this white masculinity threat measure are the ones who are most likely to downplay it. Uh, so whereas you find what close to more than half of those uh, of Texans see it as a significant crisis, you find that only about one in five in the high category see this as a significant crisis. So there's really, they're really kind of downplaying. And I mean, you get about half of those in the high category saying it's a serious problem, but not a crisis. But if you move to things such as how concerned they are, they're less concerned about uh, the spread of it in the, in the community. They're less concerned about them getting it or somebody else getting it. And this translates into, you know, just the belief that, you know, we can go back to normal either immediately or very soon. And more focus on helping the economy as opposed to controlling the spread of the virus. Then if you look at just various activities, they're just less likely to engage in these preventative activities. Uh, and, you know, as far as staying at home behavior, very few people are staying at home, but we find that uh, the data shows that 40% of those who, who strongly believe that there is a um, threat against white masculinity basically said I'm living living normal, where we find that in general, one in five Texans says they're living normal. So this this group is, is abnormal, that if you compare them to the overall average of Texans, that the reason why some of these, these scores may be so high or the number of people doing some of these things that may be seen as contradictory to preventing the disease is so high is because of those in this high category. They're the ones who are kind of gung-ho about, oh, everything's fine, let's go back to normal. Whereas those in the low category are like, no, we need to listen to the doctors. We need to stay away from uh, everything else that's going on. And, and also, they're less likely to participate in a variety of, you know, less likely to get vaccinated, less likely to participate in tracking. And they're just, this is the group that is just strongly opposed to taking this to seeing this as a, as a serious threat and following through with government recommend, recommendations and public health recommendations on how to stop the, the spread of the virus. And the, the idea of masculinity is, is important here because you're seeing things coming out of like Vice President Pence. Uh, you have the, the uh, couple other reports where people talked about wearing a mask is not masculine. It, it emasculates men. Like they put this in male concept in the context of masculinity. And frame this. And most of this is becoming out of you know white politicians who argue that masks are uh, are harmful to men's psychology. Well, you you went where I was going to urge you to go. I was going to ask you to spin that out a little bit, and you know, just sort of. I mean, you know, it's and speculate for me. And you did that, and I, I thought I was a. It was a fascinating result, in you know that. You know, it added dimensionality to, you know, some other work that's been done with the data in, in that poll that Megan Moeller did and also out of the government department at one point, you know, looking really just at gender on that dimension. And it really fleshes that out and adds a bunch more structure, you know, to this idea that that's that's just based on on gender when you add you know, this notion of a, a certain conception of gender identity. I mean, it's, it's kind of it hones it down a little bit. Um, you know, I, so, you know, what should we have talked about that we didn't as we go down to the last couple minutes? What really, or let me, let me put it this way. What's next? Like, so you've looked at this, you've kind of thought through, you've looked at these kind of results that you've gotten. Um, where do you go next with this? So 
the results that I'm presenting are the kind of cross tabs. This, this is the descriptive data. And I've done some multivariate analysis where I'm able to account for things such as religion, age, sex, gender, partisanship, and then seeing, uh, is this really just a proxy for something else? And the results have shown that it's not. And that, you know, even when I account for partisanship, that, you know, these, this attitude, this belief is still there. And in some cases, uh, either as important or more important than partisanship. So the really the next step is saying, okay, how does this play out? A better understanding of who adheres to this belief and what are, what are their politics, not just with COVID-19, but in other areas. And how might this be shaping really their ways of interacting with the government, what they expect out of leaders, and what they want their nation to look like? And I think this, these, this is critical because we're at a very critical juncture in, in American history right now. And this is a group that is fighting for a particular image of the nation. And we need to understand what is the image that they want and what are they willing to do to achieve that image? I think that is a great summation of where you've been and where you're going and what we should look for. Eric, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much, Jim. All right, man. We'll do it again soon, I hope. Um, That's it for the second reading podcast for this week. You will find this on the Texas Politics Project website. And when we post this on the blog site, we'll add links to the things that Eric has written and some of the things that we've talked about. You can also find this podcast from week to week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. I want to thank Eric again for being here and thank our crew as always in Liberal Arts ITS and the Liberal Arts Development Studio and thank our listeners. You'll find this and other things at texaspolitics.utexas.edu and we'll be back next week. Thanks. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 